Hey everybody, welcome back to part two of our seizure discussion with Dr. Zach Daniels from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Uh, for those of you who did not catch our last podcast, we discussed the different types of epilepsy um, as well as some of the treatment options. But for this talk, we're going to focus more on status epilepticus. This is obviously uh, a pretty specific definition, so we're going to let Dr. Daniels kind of walk us through that and what exactly it means and how we take care of kids in status epilepticus. So go ahead, and doc- Dr. Daniels. Okay, so I, I, I think the, the first step is to define status epilepticus, and that's a seizure lasting more than five minutes. Um, the guidelines for how to treat status epilepticus are uh, pretty clear, straightforward, and one of the few you know places in in pediatric medicine where we have good evidence. Um, There have been a lot of different trials um, that have shown uh, how to treat status epilepticus, and we'll we'll go over some of those kind of cornerstone lessons from from those studies um, and talk a little bit about how we treat status epilepticus. So um, for treatment, um, as I alluded to, there have been, uh, you know, when I looked at the guidelines, well over 20 randomized controlled trials um, that have examined uh, initial therapy um, and there are a couple class, you know, what they categorize as class one studies. Um, so the first one is a JAMA study that came out in 2014, which looked at 270, 273 children ages three months to 18 years and randomized them to either diazepam or lorazepam. And those are both IV. Uh, and what they found in this study is that there was no difference between IV diazepam and IV lorazepam in terms of seizure cessation at the 10 minute mark or without reoccurrence uh, within a 30 minute period. Uh, the, the next class one study that um, with the ILAE guidelines uh, detail is the Rampart study. And for this study, um, they looked at 120 children and they randomized them to either IM midazolam or IV lorazepam. Um, and you can guess the impetus for doing this is oftentimes, especially out in the field or in a pediatrician's office, it's not the easiest thing to get an IV. So people have tried to determine whether uh, you need an IV to, to make a seizure stop. And so that was, you know, this trial was one of the first attempts at doing that in a, in a very controlled way. Um, so what they found was that there was no statistical difference between the groups. Um, so IV, IM midazolam rather, had a, a seizure cessation rate of 68.3%, and IV lorazepam had a seizure cessation rate of 71.7%. You know, I think a lot of people criticized this study because the sample size was low and there were kind of pretty wide confidence intervals. Um, so I think generally speaking, you know, people still prefer an IV if you can get it. But, um, you know, we'll go over in a second here some of the, the kind of second cornerstone in treating status epilepticus, and that is early treatment. I was going to say, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and put my EMS hat on yes. for a second. So, and, and honestly, it's my standard practice in the emergency department as well, is I'm going to do intranasal or intramuscular first. Um, if I don't have IV access, yeah. you know, there, the time that it takes to get an IV on a seizing child, especially a younger seizing child, is definitely going to be significant when you know that you have these other routes that are, are likely satisfactory um, in, in seizure cessation. Yeah, and I think that is the general feeling out there, although, you know, the, the studies that have looked at IV versus intranasal aren't viewed as quite um, as well designed as some of the other trials. Um, I think, in general, neurologists and ED clinicians should feel very comfortable with giving IV, with, with giving intranasal medications um, to stop the seizure. Good. That's what I do. Yep. All right. Good. <laughs> you know, I, I think one, 
I'm going to talk about my pet peeve as an intensivist here because oftentimes I will get a call from an outside hospital that they only gave a half dose of lorazepam because they were worried about respiratory depression. And then I will, you know, have them describe what the kid looks like and it sounds like the kid is still seizing. The most important thing to do to stop a seizure is to give a full dose of medication. The things that cause respiratory depression, sure, benzos can cause respiratory depression, but so can seizures. So the most important thing to stop a seizure is to give a medication early, and we'll talk about some of the trials that really establish that data. Um, so, you know, I, I, we'll just transition right into that. Um, and the next cornerstone of treating status is time. Um, so the faster you get a medication into their system, the more likely they are to stop the seizure. Um, the longer it takes, the more likely that that seizure will persist and they will end up in my care, in the pediatric intensive care unit. Um, so one of the most important trials here was published in JAMA, uh, in JAMA Neurology in 2018. And in this study, they enrolled 218 patients. And it showed that patients who had an untimely benzodiazepine treatment, and they defined untimely as more than 10 minutes past the start of their seizure, had an independently associated higher frequency of death continuous infusion, so continuous infusion with either midazolam or pentobarbital to stop their seizures. Uh, they had a longer convulsion duration and more frequent hypotension. Uh, all bad things. All bad things. So the median duration uh, was 48.5 minutes longer for patients who received untimely benzodiazepine treatment. Um, so it's pretty clear that you should give a medication early and you should give a full dose to get that seizure to stop because if you don't, they might end up with a lot more complications. Um, you know, in the PICU, you know, we see kids with refractory status. Um, and the goal in the PICU is to get that seizure to stop as soon as possible. What we know is that kids that seize for a long time have really poor outcomes. Uh, they have, uh, you know, oftentimes they'll leave uh, with some sort of new device um, because of brain injury. So they might leave with a tracheostomy that might leave with a G-tube. Uh, it might lead to longer recovery times or they might die. Um, so, uh, you know, it's one of my pet peeves in the PICU when I hear, uh, you know, you know, an ED physician at, you know, adult hospitals mainly, granted, say I gave like, you know, a half dose of Ativan and they're still seizing, what do you want me to do? I'll say I want you to give a full dose of Ativan and let's see what happens. Um, so an important kind of treatment uh, lesson um, that everybody should follow. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I think you can't harp on that enough that by not stopping the seizure because you're worried about the respiratory depression, you're likely going to cause the respiratory, if not the respiratory depression, the hypoxia of the prolonged seizure. So, you know, you really need to get these benzodiazepines on board and there's been plenty of data to support the use of a full dose of benzodiazepine as a first line agent in status epilepticus. Yeah, so, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, we'll get called on the PICU, like I gave a benzo, what do you want me to do next? And so um, there are some really great trials out there that, that um, have tried to randomize patients to different therapies and, and looked at the outcomes. So the most important of which is the ESET trial, which uh, every ED physician knows, um, which was published in The Lancet in 2020, and there's a similar trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine as well. Um, but for the Lancet trial, they randomized 478 patients, um, which included kids and adults, um, who had received a benzodiazepine and were still seizing to one of three medications. So either phosphenitone, Keppra, or valproic acid. And what they found was all of these medications stopped a seizure with similar e efficacy and similar side effect profiles. 
Now, you ask any neurologist, and they're going to say, well, my personal preference is phosphenitone, or I like to use Keppra, or, you know, I tend to use valproic acid. So I, I feel like people still kind of use all of these different medications. Um, you know, generally speaking, what I find is the most effective is phosphenitone. Um, just giving a, you know, medication with a sodium channel blocker, I think, tends to um, stop seizures more quickly. Um, but the literature shows that any of these medications work. What I, as an ED physician, find most beneficial is whatever's in my OmniCell. Yes, I think that's, that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> I think the, the caveat I will give with Keppra is that you need to give a larger dose. So I think, you know, back when I started training, we thought a bolus dose of Keppra was like 20 per kilo. Um, these days, you know, I think neurologists feel like a bolus dose is anywhere from 40 to 80 per kilo. So, um, you know, you need to give a large dose of Keppra for it to work. Well, I mean, what happens if I gave my benzo, and then I gave phosphenny, and the kid's still, still seizing? What am I supposed to do next? Then you call me. That's All right, perfect. That's what you're there for. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the treatment of refractory status is uh, can be defined as failing those first two medications. So that's, that's generally how it's described in the literature. Um, refractory status is... Uh, a bit of a complex topic because there's not good literature to support the practices that we do. Um, so typically the first line medication that most centers is a midazolam drip infusion and we'll titrate that up to some level and then we'll switch to the next medication. The, the thing in the PICU that we don't know is what is the level of midazolam where we should switch to that next medication and what is that next medication we should switch to because once you get into these drip infusions, they all have side effects that are pretty significant. So, um, you know, just know that once they get to us, the, there's not a lot of evidence-based guidelines, and we kind of follow the protocol that the institution has established. Seems reasonable. Other thoughts from a status epilepticus standpoint. So we're going to do benzos first. We're going to do them early. And then we're going to do either uh, Phosphenny or Keppra or whatever's in my OmniCell. Um, and then if that's no, not, still not working, I'm calling you. That's, that sounds right. All right. And full, full dose of benzo. No full half, dose. No half doses. We don't have, we don't have anything. All right. All right. Um, why don't we uh, round this discussion out with uh, some neonatal seizures? Yeah, so um, this is a topic that I, I don't really know what the boards would ask, but it, you know, it, it has been on previous uh, outlines in terms of topics they could test on. And, you know, I, so I've tried to make this section a little bit more practical in terms of some important concepts that pediatricians should know, uh, because oftentimes we as pediatricians are the first line people that see these patients. Um, so they're coming for the well child check and, you know, mom or dad saw these movements and is this a seizure? Should we see a neurologist? And, you know, I, I think it can be a tricky question for pediatricians. Um, Seizures in neonates can be difficult to distinguish from non-seizure events. Uh, so a parent might describe things like stretching or random sucking or coughing or gagging or other kind of non-specific movements and want to know if those are seizures. Um, no, it's just your baby moving. The, the, tricky, <laughs> the tricky part is even we as clinicians are horrible at identifying seizures in neonates. So uh, for instance, in one study, in a NICU, um, they um, had um, care providers log every suspected seizure, and just 9% of all EEG-confirmed seizures had clinical manifestations, while 78% of abnormal events documented by the NICU had no EEG correlate. 
So we are terrible even as trained healthcare providers at identifying neonatal seizures. So I think as a pediatrician, it's really important for you to have, uh, not be too confident in saying, oh, that's just a stretch or, oh, that's, you know, some other random baby movement that we don't need to worry about. I think it's important to kind of get a full history and use your best judgment because I, you know, I think you just need to know that um, we're not good at identifying neonatal seizures. Now, I don't want every pediatrician who gets a description of a baby stretching to refer them to a neurologist, but um, I do think you should have a healthy skepticism of if a parent is worried about some weird thing their kid is doing uh, to take that seriously. Differential for neonatal seizures is pretty broad um, and uh, can be uh, difficult to work up. So let's just talk about a few of those things. You know, in the NICU, they see a lot of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which can lead to seizures. Uh, oftentimes, in the first one to three months, you'll start to see uh, many of these genetic epilepsy syndromes, which we talked about in the previous podcast. Uh, so typically, those epileptic encephalopathies present kind of early in the neonatal period, um, like Odahara syndrome and things like that. Um, and those, those can be you know, pediatricians can be the first line and kind of saying, you know, there's something not right in the development of this kid, and mom is describing all these different movements, I need to refer them to a neurologist. Um, other things that happen in the neonatal period are things like uh, mitochondrial diseases, meta metabolic derangements, um, things like birth trauma, um, tuberous sclerosis, and then infectious etiologies. So, you know, say you have a kid who comes in and mom is describing a focal seizure and you take their temperature and they have a fever. Um, and they're two, two weeks old. I think we all know the guidelines there. Um, so they need to go see Dr. Rayburn here uh, and get a tap uh, and kind of start that full workup. That's what um, I'm here for. Many of these uh, infections in the neonatal period can be life-threatening. Uh, many of them, like HSV, for instance, can lead to very poor outcomes. Um, so we described in the last podcast, you know, a kid um, who comes in with HSV, oftentimes they can have strokes. Um, they can have significant developmental impairment afterwards. And then once they've had those kind of injuries, they can develop infantile spasms. So um, you need to have uh, a very good watch on these kids who come in with fevers um, who are in that first month of life. Other things to think about in neonatal seizures are things like beta-galen malformations uh, and the uh, you know, dreaded non-accidental trauma. Um, we, all, we all have heard those, those cases in, in residency uh, in, a, in, our, in our pediatric practices, and those are some of the worst things to deal with in the PICU. Indeed. Well, you know, once once we're kind of considering this on our differential, um, you know, you said obviously we're not referring everyone to neurology for an EEG. However, what's the best way to work these up? You know, obviously taking a good history and physical. That's the answer to every board question if it's an option. But beyond that, what can we do? Yeah, so I think the, you know, if you're pretty convinced that uh, a newborn has seizure, um, the first things, like in any seizure, um, that you should test for are the easiest things to fix. So things like hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia. Then you need to think about infection if they've had a fever. So um, ordering things like a CBC, CRP, blood culture, lumbar culture, lumbar puncture culture, etc. Um, the next thing is if they had a focal seizure, they might require some imaging. Um, so things like an MRI or CT scan. And a neurologist will help you determine uh, what they want you to order based on the history. So 
I think the most important thing for you as a pediatrician to do is to get a good history because that really dictates what, what workup is going to be done. Um, other things to worry about in the neonatal period are um, things like withdrawal. So um, you can get meconium analysis to look for presence of illicit substances. And then the other thing that comes up, uh, unfortunately not too infrequently, is um, the kind of these early epilepsy syndromes. Um, so early genetic testing um, uh, is the wave of the future, honestly, in kids that have uh, new onset epilepsy in the neonatal period. Um, it's becoming the standard of care for many of these kids. Catching things early, like, you know, a very common one is KCNQ2. That's the most kind of common genetic epilepsy syndrome identified. And when you think you are dealing with an epileptic encephalopathy, um, there are some papers that have shown um, that in 80% of cases they can find a genetic cause. So um, it's important to get kids with, you know, frequent seizures in the, in the newborn period to a neurologist who can work them up and uh, do some of this genetic workup um, because I think it's becoming increasingly the standard of care. I can't wait until I get my uh, own home, home uh, whole genome sequencing kit. I think it's coming. I think it'll probably replace the newborn screen at some point, just to do whole exome sequencing on anybody that's born. Yeah, absolutely. So just the future, just right? like the the whole body MRI as you walk through the ED. Exactly. It'll be short and quick, and we are cutting exactly edge. Exactly what's going we on. We are cutting edge. Well, Dr. Daniels, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you being on our podcast, and thanks again. All right. Thanks.